Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. For those of you who were with us uh, three weeks ago, you remember that we started telling the story of Josiah, this uh, wonderful king in the story of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Uh, You'll see a map on your screen there in just a second, just to recap. Um, At the time of this story, 640 to 609 BC, uh, it's in the uh, life of uh, the the people of God. Uh, The kingdom of Israel was now divided into two kingdoms. Israel had been taken out by Assyria. The kingdom of Judah was still standing. Josiah was king at the time. Uh, It was a pagan kingdom, essentially, like it had almost completely abandoned uh, the Lord, completely abandoned the scriptures. Uh, Josiah, just to recap, uh, sends somebody down to check and see how things are going in the temple, and this person comes back to him with uh, the scriptures, comes back to him with uh, a copy of the Torah or a copy of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and uh, Josiah says, oh, why don't you read that to me? And and, uh, the the word of God is read to Josiah and his heart is just broken. He's grieved. He, he comes to a place of repentance. The word of God enters into his life in a way that, that literally uh, he allows himself to be broken. He tears his clothes and he repents and mourns. And we began to talk about that last week, what it is to come to a place of authentic repentance when we recognize that God has come into our life, come into our, our journey. He has spoken something to us about our brokenness. And we know that we need to turn. And, and this first place in the story of Josiah is just this honest reaction. There's a a breaking point. There has been a fracture in my relationship with the Lord, and I'm grieving. I'm separated from Him. I'm broken. Uh, Something needs to happen. Something needs to change. And the story continues, where we sort of paused in our story of the life of Josiah, was to just sort of look and say, what happens next? You've probably come to places like that in your life, where you've uh, recognize that you have uh, an idol, recognize that you have a, an area of sin in your life that you need to deal with, something that has taken the place of Christ in your life, something that's become more important than him, more important than worship, more important than giving him glory, uh, something that has begun to control you, something that has begun to guide you, something that has become your source of encouragement, your source of hope that isn't him, and something that will ultimately lead you astray and will ultimately bring uh, destruction in your life. There, there are all kinds of things that we have in our lives like that. For some of us, it's our career. We, we feel like we get so much meaning from our career, so much meaning from uh, our, it can happen to a pastor, from our ministry, that that ministry uh, and becomes such a, an important source of meaning and identity that we lose sight of who we're ministering to and who we're caring for. Um, your career can do that for you. It can take such a, an important uh, role in your life. It's your source of income. It's your source of resource. It's your source of affirmation. It's your source of encouragement. And all of a sudden, it is, it is number one in your life, and Jesus is number two in your life. There can be all kinds of different things. Sometimes it can be an addiction. Uh, sometimes it can be material things. But we, we tend to take uh, idols and, and invest ourselves in them and think they're the thing that is ultimately going to result in good in our life. And the reality is is that the only thing that will really result in good in your life is Jesus. And so uh, Josiah, amen, right? Josiah has come to that place. He's come to that place to realize my life is invested in 
all of these other things, and our nation is invested in all of these other things, uh, Baal and Asherah and all of these other Canaanite gods that we're going to, and we're making sacrifices, we're sacrificing our time, we're sacrificing our resource, we're sacrificing our energy to them in hopes that rain will fall on the land and good things will come to us. And he realizes they're empty. They're dead gods, and the real living God has spoken to me through his word and is calling me to once again follow him. And Josiah sort of tears his beard and comes to that place of grief and wrestling. And the question then is, where does he go from there? How do we walk forward from those moments of recognition? Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take a moment, like just 30 seconds of silence, as Simon did earlier, and just let us reflect so that as we go through this message, you can identify what your idols are, what things have supplanted Christ in your own life and in your own mind. And so that as we uh, talk about these things, you can make application that is very personal to you um, from the scriptures. So let's just take a moment. Just ask the Holy Spirit to come uh, like, like he did to Josiah and identify what are your idols, what things have taken that role of Christ in your life. Father, we come well, with fear and trembling in our hearts. And we just ask that you would speak to us and identify for us our idols. Amen. So Josiah came to this place. He, he recognized his idols. I hope you can identify yours. Maybe you should write them down on your phone or something like that, but just so that you can be conscious of them. But he came to recognize what was going on in his life, and he tore his clothes and, and began to mourn and began to grieve. And then, you know, you just can't stay in that place. You can't stay in that place of just being miserable about your life for, for very long, right? There comes a moment when you have to act. And so the question is, what do you do with that recognition? And we're just going to track through the life of Josiah and sort of look at what he did and how he moved forward and just learn some things from it. It's not really a prescription uh, so much, but I think it's just real wisdom in the way he moved forward, and I think some stuff we can learn. Um, the first thing we see in the text is in uh, 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 to 2. It says this, The king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So the first thing Josiah did was he'd had an encounter with the Lord and he shared it. 
Right? He had an encounter with God that had transformed his life, that had spoken to him, that had, had, had changed him. He said, this thing that has happened to me, I want it to happen to those in my sphere of influence. Now, as a king, he has a massive sphere of influence. He has a lot of people that he could talk to, a lot of people that he could gather. But he went and gathered them and began to talk to them and began to have that experience shared with them. We don't know how many days this would have taken. It wouldn't have been like a short project to read all the five books of the, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament to them, right? So it was clearly something that would have happened over a number of days, a number of gatherings, drawing the people together. Imagine all of these people sort of somehow standing in this temple. Remember, the idols are all still in the temple. The pagan priests are still in there. It's a dirty, messy place, but he just introduces the word of God into that brokenness and into that chaos and has it read. Uh, his life was not sorted yet. And that's the first thing that we want to learn from this is that you can share the story of God. You can share the work that he's doing in your heart. The moment he shares it, you are an evangelist. The moment he begins to transform you, you have something to share. You share out of your brokenness, you share out of your imperfection, but you begin to bring those in your sphere of influence along with you on the journey. Josiah didn't know anything. He didn't, hadn't cleared out the idols. He hadn't figured it all out yet. He hadn't gotten his own life cleaned out yet, but he was like, let's bring it along. I remember when I was pastoring in Toronto, we had this, uh, this kid who, uh, who gave his life to the Lord and he was a drug dealer. And so he just started like packing tracks in with the weed he was selling. <laughs> right? Like, that's not the best scenario. I'm not recommending this. But it's like your life is just getting cleaned up and you just begin to share the goodness of God that, that's in you. You want to clean your life. You don't want to stay there. You don't want to stop there. But you begin to share. Uh, the second thing he did, like he gathered his circle of influence. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, you have a circle of influence. We tend, when we think of evangelism and sharing our story, maybe we want to put something on social media. Uh, maybe we say, okay, pastor, let's put on an alpha program, which is awesome, and we're going to do that in the fall. Let's find a way to, uh, to get this story of Jesus out there. But the very first place your story of transformation needs, transformation needs to be heard is in the lives of your friends. You have a sphere of influence. You have family around you. And I know that we are, we are frightened of that. We, we don't want to make people nervous. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. But what happened to Josiah in terms of transformation overcame his shame. It overcame his fear of that. And so for you, as Jesus begins to transform you and change your life, let that overpower uh, your embarrassment. Let that overpower your shame. Let that overpower your inhibitions. And just simply begin to share with the sphere of influence that God has given you. Uh, there were yeah, years of teaching in the 1980s about something called friendship evangelism. And it was really, really, really radical. Evangelize your friends. <laughs> That's it. Right? Tell your friends about Jesus. Uh, a great, uh, great person out in Western Canada used to all say to me, you know what, I just treat people like they're Christians until they realize they're not and they want to be. I treat my friends like they're Christian friends. I, I don't cover up my faith. I don't hide it. I don't pretend to be somebody else. I don't try to like slip Jesus in between past the salt and pepper and, and sort of share a word of Jesus that may possibly cause them to think about him. I just share my life as a believer. I share it in that context. Now, the second thing we see in the text is that, um, or maybe it's third or fourth or fifth or sixth thing I see in the text, but uh, is, is he took them into the temple, Right? He, he chose a context for them. He chose a place for them to go. I, I think that's something that's really important for us as well. Like, I think bring your friends to church. 
Like if you, if you were going to sort of identify on a Sunday morning all of the places, or even in the course of a given week, all of the places where you could say, I guarantee that that's a spot where somebody could feel and encounter and sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. What, what, what place would you pick if you were going to throw a dart and say, that's the spot where I think that person could feel and experience and taste and see that the Lord is good? Right here. Right now. Right? So he brought the people as close to God, the presence of God, as he could. It was all he knew to do. So he brought them into the temple. He took them to church. And then uh, just another thought on this is he, he didn't, you know, craft a perfect message. He didn't uh, craft a perfect testimony. He didn't know exactly what to say. He simply read the word of God. He simply read them the word of God. Imagine that. Imagine inviting your friend over and say, hey, let's just read John together. Would that, would that be weird? Who one of you would think that's a great idea? I think I'm going to do that this week. That sounds crazy. But that's kind of exactly what Josiah did, because he believed that the written word of God, read aloud, has power to affect people's lives and transform them. What if you had a book club about a book of the Bible and just invited people over your home to engage with the scriptures? Just an organic Bible study and invited your friends into it. What would happen? It wouldn't be in your control. It wouldn't be anything that you did. It wouldn't be anything that you achieved. You're simply allowing the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do its work in people's hearts. That's what Josiah did, and, and, and it brought about revival. You can have confidence that the Word of God, which transformed you, has power to transform the ones you love. You can be confident in the Word of God. And so uh, Josiah just challenges our fear, challenges our, our thinking, like, like you have something powerful and amazing to share simply because Jesus is working in your life and, uh, and transforming you. Moving on to verse 3, um, I think we've got the next slide for that. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Uh, he made a public confession. He made a public declaration. It's not enough for us to take our faith and let it be an internal thing. And let it be just an us thing. Let, let my religion be a private thing. I don't want to share that with you. Let you have your faith and I'll have my faith. There's something about Josiah that said, I need to get this out. I need to share this. I need to recommit my life to the Lord publicly. And we have a couple of mechanisms for this uh, as, a, as a body, right? There's, there's baptism, right? There's this really strange thing that, that, that happens in the New Testament where uh, people who are wanting to follow Jesus and wanting to give their lives to him, the demarcation point, the transformation point for them, the moment which uh, they communicate uh, that that is real and that is happening in their lives is to go and publicly and to allow other Christians, other believers to take them and dunk them in a river. Like, that's weird. It's just weird. But it's powerful symbolism, and it's something that you can't really hide. I mean, you could get, say, please, pastor, can you please take me, uh, and we'll go turn off the lights, and we'll go into our house, and maybe my wife and kids can maybe come, and we're going to do it in the bathtub. I can't get right underneath. I don't have a big bathtub, but we're going to use a shower, and we're going to kind of cover me off that way. 
right? No, this is something that's meant to be done public. It's meant to be a public declaration. I was talking with David Roos um, just yesterday, and he was sharing stories from Nepal. And it, it's not our experience as, as people. It's not how, how we live. When we get baptized, it's kind of like, yeah, ho-hum in our culture. We're not in this place where it's uh, a radical uh, shift for people, although we do have we do see increasing resistance to it. I, I, I don't want to necessarily do that. It doesn't feel cool. It doesn't feel right to me. There's there's increasing resistance to going public with your faith that, that Christians are experiencing and new believers are experiencing. But in Nepal, you can say you're a Christian. Uh, you can start going to church. You can you can have an encounter of faith. You can start reading the Bible, and your family and your friends they will kind of like say, yeah, that's okay. That's normal. And they, and you can exist in that sort of Buddhist culture. And, and be a, a Christian who attends church and reads the Bible. But the moment you're baptized, all Hades breaks loose because you've said something really radical to the culture. You said, I'm making a breaking point with my old religion. I'm becoming fully immersed in this new life of faith. And that's when people begin to have uh, a transformation in terms of their relationships with their families and all of that. Becoming a Christian and, and walking through repentance uh, indicates for us a radical shift in identity, and that's what Josiah was doing there. He wasn't just saying, I'm just going to have this experience with Jesus and quietly change my life and hope people notice. There's power in the declaration. There's power in saying it publicly. The other mechanism we have for this, of course, is communion. We give people a choice every single week. Do you want to have a share in this or not? And very often, people in our community that have come to faith for the first time, the way they've signaled that is by taking communion for the first time. We'll have somebody who comes to church a number of weeks, a number of months, even a year, and they'll just sit back and wait and let communion pass them by. And there comes this moment when they've been transformed and all of a sudden they say, yes, I, I, I want in on this. I want to receive this. I want to accept it. And the other thing that we have in our culture, in our church culture, in terms of signaling that transformation is uh, when we do altar calls. And that's something that we don't do. It's not really part of our culture at, at OVC. I don't know, even last week or two weeks ago, you'll remember I said, hey, if anybody wants to, has had an encounter with Jesus here and they've begun to feel that there's something they need to wrestle through or they need prayer for, please, please feel free to come up and sit here and we're going to pray for you. And as pastor, it's like, I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's cricket. It's, it's, it's not something that we're really comfortable with. Right? It's not something that we do, but in many uh, sort of charismatic and Pentecostal and sometimes Baptist church cultures that uh, I'm responding to something that's happened in the message. I need to sort of publicly declare a recommitment to Christ in this area, and I need to come forward. I need to let people see that I've come forward, and I need to uh, have the leaders of the church community come and gather around me and pray. That's something that we need to work on as a church in terms of a mechanism to allow us to begin to signal the transformation that's happening in our lives, to declare it publicly. Because in, in declaring it publicly, those words of covenant and public confession, they, they invite our communities to hold us to account. Right? It's risky. It's, it, it, it touches on our fear of failure, doesn't it? Like if I declare that I'm going to be changed in this area and I'm going to begin to walk after God in this way, then uh, I, I don't sort of don't want the community to know I've made that choice because I might blow it. But what you give up in, in maintaining that secrecy is you lose the support of the community that doesn't know you've gone through something. 
and they could walk with you and they could talk with you and can they journey with you and pray with you and watch over you and care for you. So those moments of transformation um, need to be declared publicly and, and need to be sort of powerfully uh, brought forward. Uh, going on to the, the next thought um, here, what you see is an image of a, an archeological site called Tel Lashish. And I, and I just want to bring that to us as, as sort of a foundation for uh, the next thought in the text, and that's that Josiah at that point begins to tear down his idols. Remember, he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't gone into the temple and torn down those idols yet. He hasn't taken those things and been able to actually remove those temptations, those sin things from his life yet. He's committed to it publicly. He's invited others into the journey with him, but he hasn't done it yet. Um, but this, this is a really fascinating archaeological find. Uh, we can see um, this is a, a site that's dated to the time of Hezekiah. Those little pottery shards in the bottom left are actually stamped with this, the, the kingly seal of King Hezekiah. Um, so they're, they're a piece of pottery from his time. Hezekiah was another reformer king who basically took the idols in the land and tore them down and, and began to, uh, to make a difference. Uh, but in, in 2016, the archaeologists began to dug this thing up, and, and they, they found a fascinating thing in this site. Uh, it's basically, it's, hard, it's sort of hard to tell there, but it's a, it's a six-chambered site just inside the main gate of one of the major towns uh, called uh, Lashish in southern Judah. And so it would have been sort of a secondary trade city to Jerusalem. And when you would come into the gate uh, in those ancient cities that were sort of pagan cities by nature, you would come in and there would be rooms on either side of the gate that would have uh, examples of all of the idols of the city sitting in niches in the walls or sitting on tables. And it'd be uh, idols of Baal and, and Asherah and all that. And you would come into the city and you would be awed by the idols that are there. And then uh, in that entry point, and there have been other things that were happening there, it would be an administrative center, it would be a place where you could pay taxes, it would be a place where you could pay entry fees or duties and all that kind of thing. So it's an administrative center as well. Um, but those sort of idle areas, those worship areas, were, were part of that gate system. And when you'd go in there, you would come in with a sacrifice and you would lay it on a table. And then behind that, uh, that niche, that area where there was the table to lay your sacrifice down, uh, there would have been a room in the back that was sort of like almost like a holy of holies uh, to the equivalent to the idol worship. And inside that would be an altar. And inside that space uh, would be uh, a place where the priests would sort of make the sacrifices and kill animals and, and do all of that stuff. And so on your bottom left, or sorry, bottom right, you see an altar. And what you notice about it is that the, the corners are broken off of it. Those ancient uh, altars would have a, a horn on each corner, a built-up piece of each corner. And, and in the case of Baal worship, from other examples elsewhere, there would be a statue of Baal on each of the four corners of the altar. In this particular room, uh, dated to the time of Hezekiah, uh, the, the horns are smashed off the corners of the altar, and there's a strange thing in the room. In the middle of the room was dug a pit, and on the pit was set that toilet. And in the pit was thrown the horns from the altar, from uh, the, altars of, the altar of Baal were, were down inside the pit. This is an example of 
how Hezekiah desecrated the altars of Baal in his reform, in his time. He literally took the horns of the altar, threw them in a toilet pit that he had dug, and the king took care of business. <laughs> Like, that's a pretty radical, and then, and then the whole thing was sealed up. The whole thing was sealed up. That's a pretty radical uh, commitment to dealing with idolatry. That's not just saying, hey, I'm going to just not do that anymore. I'm just going to set that aside. That's, that's seriously saying, uh, we're going to destroy this thing. We're going to pound this thing down. We're, we're going we're gonna to beat it up. We're going to deal with it. Uh, as we walk through 2 Kings 23, uh, verse 4, and the king commanded Hilkiah, now we're in Josiah's time, the high priest to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for all of the host of heaven, and he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields and carried their ashes to Bethel. So he took all the idols of, of the vessels of Jerusalem, all of the things that sort of served that whole temple industry, all of the cups, all of the knives, all of the, the vessels that sort of served that priesthood to sort of say, hey, I haven't got the idols out of there yet, but everything that supports this, I'm taking it out. So we, we're just going to stop this activity now, and it's going to take us some time to muscle out the rest of the idols. I'm just going to stop the flow right now. He takes these things, he pounds them into dust, he burns them, and takes them up to Bethel. Bethel is the place where a number of years before, uh, another king had taken and said, hey, listen, it's too far for you guys to go to worship uh, at Jerusalem in the place called Dan and a place called Bethel. We're going to set up a golden calf, similar to the one that Moses had to deal with back in the day. We're going to set that up, and you can just come that far and worship in this place. It was part of the breakdown of the northern and the southern kingdom, right? And so he said, we're going to take the ashes from this, and we're going to go sprinkle it there. We're going to make a really clear statement that we're, that we're going to deal with Bethel next. Right? So just, again, a radical commitment. Uh, he's ruthless about tearing them down. Uh, verse 5, And he deposed the priest who the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places. That's something that we have to do too. We have to depose the voices in our lives that point us towards our idols. You all have people, and I have people in my life that would uh, say your idol is, uh, is money. Say your idol is material things. You have people in your life that will sort of sidle up to you and want to talk to you about uh, the latest and greatest tech or the latest and greatest automobile or the latest and greatest boat or, or whatever it is. The stuff that kind of inflames your desire. And they'll say, hey, I've got this. And you, something in your heart says, oh, I want that too. Uh, something in your heart that sort of is inflamed by these voices that kind of point you towards towards whatever it is that your idol is that you're wrestling with. And you don't need to get rid of all your friends and, and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to not talk to you ever again. But you need to diminish the volume of those voices that draw you into sin. You need to demote them. You need to, to pull them out of, your, out of your diet of input that you're receiving in life. Uh, going on to verse 6, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron and burned it and took at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the, the common people. By that it meant the profane people. Uh, what they were doing in that time was uh, wherever, because there was a culture where you don't touch anything that's dead, he basically took all of those items out of the temple, crushed them, burned them to dust, made them so they're completely useless, and then scattered them somewhere where no one would go. 
Sometimes you need to take the things that are your idols. Maybe it's uh, something that keeps you uh, locked in or tied to pornography. Maybe it's something that leads you uh, locked in or tied to materialism. Whatever it is in your life that you're locked into, whatever it is, it's, it's more than taking an app off your phone or dealing with it in some cursory way. Is there something that you can do to further diminish, burn, destroy that thing that is destroying you? Like you go postal on it. <laughs> You go nuts on it. You demo it. You destroy it. You, you kill it. You, you smash it. If it's an addiction thing, whatever it is, you get people in your life around you to help you begin to destroy and make untouchable those things that are destroying you. Uh, verse 7, and he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the houses of Judah. So you make your life an uncomfortable place for idols to dwell. We're just going to keep going fast. And he brought all the priests out of the cities. This is verse 8 uh, to Judah. He defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings. You remove the temptation from your surroundings. Once your immediate sphere is safe, once you've got your room cleaned out, once you've got your house cleaned out, uh, then you begin to, to go to the other places where those temptations are and you begin uh, to diminish the influence in those high places, in those difficult places. Wherever you have permission and enough influence to deal with those things, you begin to deal with it. You let the circle get wider and wider. You don't stop uh, early in the journey. You just keep going and going. You have a radical commitment to cleaning up your life. Um, verse 10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnon, that no, white, no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. There's a lot to talk about there, but uh, in that time, there were, there were places and there were altars where, uh, you know, that sort of pagan sacrifice thing was taken to the nth, where you actually, your, your addictions, your, your brokenness, your idolatry is, is actually something that is causing you to do injustice to your, your very family, to your children. It, it's costing you. And so he's like, not only am I going to deal with it for myself, not only am I going to deal with my idolatry internally, I'm going to go where I can and use what influence I can to see that there's justice for people who are being destroyed by this idolatry. Even in others, I'm going to fight for justice for these children. I'm going to fight for safety for these children. I don't want what is happening in other people's lives uh, to be uh, having this impact on the lives of the kids, on the lives of the people around me. So not only do you become a person who is cleaning out your own life and dealing with the idolatry internally, but wherever you have permission, wherever you're able to, you begin to fight for justice in the area where you were once oppressed. And you begin to work and begin to move and begin to try to make a difference. And the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and he broke them in pieces and cast them into the brook uh, of Kidron. And I, and I note there, don't let your family history be an excuse. That's a specific note about his grandfather, Manasseh. He didn't just deal with the idols that were, uh, you know, his own thing. He, he dealt with his family history. These are things his grandfather had done. And he said... I, I want to not honor what my grandfather has done. I want to make a departure. Sometimes our wrestling with sin, it, we have a hard time. Like, like if I really get free of this, I feel like I'm judging my mom. 
I feel like I'm judging my dad. I feel like I'm, I'm pointing at their life and saying that that's, that, that was wicked. I, I want to have a part with them, so I'm going to maybe hold on a little bit. But part of our healing as people is to tear down the idols, even those that were put in our lives or installed in our lives uh, by family members that we love and care deeply about. We have to deal with our family history. Verse 13, and the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption with Solomon, the king of Israel, had built. And now he's dealing with his heroes. Now he's dealing with the idolatry of, of, of Solomon, this great hero in the life of Israel, this wealthy king, this king who brought Israel to its golden age. Not even uh, my heroes are an excuse for my idols. Not even my heroes. And then there's this amazing encounter in 2 Kings 23:15. Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place, uh, erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned it, reducing it to dust. And, and to just understand that uh, Bethel place, that's, that's helping, just helping his neighbors. That's saying, hey, listen. Uh, there's, a, there's a connection between you and I. There's a, there's a wrestling here in, in our relationship. There's a, a source of idolatry um, in your life that feeds an idolatry in my life. Can we begin to work on this together? Can we begin to work on it together? Can we uh, make a difference? And so where you can, you help your neighbors. And then in 2 Kings 17 to 18, there's this really interesting experience that he has in Bethel. He says, what is that monument that I see? And remember, he's desecrated with the people of Bethel, uh, their altars. He's a little bit outside of his kingdom, a little bit outside of his sphere of influence. He's moved out to the outer circle now as he's been seeking purity. And he says, well, what is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you've done against the altar in Bethel. And he says, let him be, let no man move his bones, so they let his bones alone. And what I take from that is that there, there are people in our lives who are sent to point out our idolatries. There are people who are sent to point us uh, to transformation that needs to happen in our lives. There are people who say uncomfortable things to us. And while we've torn down all of these altars, we need to leave standing in our lives reminders and voices of people who are calling us to righteousness. And we need to leave their spaces in our lives alone. We need to invite them uh, to speak into us. We simply can't uh, do the journey by ourselves. We simply can't do the journey on our own. We need people in our lives who love us enough to call us on our stuff. And that's not easy for us in our culture, right? We, we tend to be very independent. We tend to say, my life is my life. Uh, we tend to not take it very well when people bring judgment or criticism because it feels like judgment and criticism and we just don't like that. But sometimes those voices that feel like judgment and criticism are prophetic voices in our lives that say, hey, there's, there's something here that you need to, you need to touch. 
There's something here that you need to address. You need to welcome the people in your life who are going to say the hard things to you. And in the end, and this is where we end, this is where we come to the table, and um, Josiah commanded the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who ruled Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. And this is the end of the story. The end of all of the idol tearing down that happens in our lives is this restoration of relationship and this reminder that even in spite of all of our work to tear down our idols, all of our work to seek purity, that all of our work, our religious acts, are ultimately not enough to save us. They're simply not enough to save us. We do these things. We tear down the idols in our lives out of love, out of worship, out of adoration, out of a sense of repentance, out of a being called to a standard and knowing that we need to move uh, in that way. But ultimately, we're still utterly and completely dependent on Jesus. Isaiah, the prophet who uh, was killed by, um, by Manasseh, by Josiah's grandfather, said this in Isaiah 64, all our works are like filthy rags. All of this work to tear down idols in our lives, as beautiful and as important as it is, that's still filthy rags. It's still not what saves us. It's still not what transforms us. We're ultimately only transformed by the grace of God. We're ultimately only transformed uh, through what Jesus did for us on the cross. His word is the word that we need to nurture us and, and to keep us. What he's accomplished here is what ultimately restores us, restores relationship and restores friendship and restores intimacy. What he did on the cross. And so Josiah, in his time, he says, let's remember what happened to the people of Israel as a people under judgment because of sacrifices made, the wrath of the Lord passed over them. The wrath of the angel of the Lord passed over them. And they're made clean by a sacrifice. And we, in our time, are not made clean by the sacrifice of lambs and not made clean by uh, spreading the blood of them over our doorposts. Uh, we're made clean by coming before the cross and saying, Jesus, 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 you die for me. You love me. You saved me from my sin. I receive you. And that's the covenant that we hold. That's the covenant that we keep. That restoration of this, that restoration of communion is what comes. And you have your communion cups with you, and you can take them out. Lord, we come, we confess that we have many idols. We have many things, our careers, our homes, our resources, our addictions, 
that we have placed before you. And, and we want to be people who, out of love and adoration and out of repentant hearts, want to tear down those idols. And we want to live in holiness and we want to live in purity. But we know ultimately that purity uh, is only from you. It only comes uh, from what you've done for us on the cross. And so we come uh, to take these elements, to take this bread and take this wine, uh, to say that as we tear down our idols, we are still utterly and completely and wholly dependent on you for life, dependent on you for salvation. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.